Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben. Uh, thanks everyone for being here. I just want to start off by uh, just quickly acknowledging that uh, I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Talaman, uh, Comox, uh, and uh, Kalani, and Homokal First Nations uh, who have been here time immemorial and were actually one nation uh, before they were separated uh, by colonists back in the day. So uh, really grateful to be here on their lands and grateful to be able to work here on the island of Sayayin, which is um, in, in the community of Isam, which is known uh, by colonists as Texada Island in British Columbia here. Uh, so thanks again for uh, for that. Uh, today on the podcast, we have uh, Dr. James Lee on the show. Thanks for being here, James. Sure. Thanks for having me. Really excited to talk to James today. James uh, is a uh, postdoctoral uh, researcher at the the Juniper Gardens uh, Center down at the University of Kansas. Uh, recently had uh, Dr. Nicole Hollins on, who's also a postdoc researcher there, and uh, learned a lot about Juniper Gardens and uh, been, been really scouring their website for the last few days looking for more guests because uh, there seems to be a lot of really, really, really cool things kind of happening down there, really kind of uh, outside the box kind of stuff and, and juniper gardens isn't just an aba program but in terms of sort of the aba research that i've seen kind of come out of there it, it really does seem to be sort of you know um uh you know beyond kind of your traditional sort of uh you know aba type uh you know uh research um, um you know in particular i think of you know uh dr uh dr uh, uh watson thompson um i said that right um uh, and and we had her uh, speak at our, our at our uh, uh, British Columbia ABA chapter conference. Uh, I think it was last year, and mind blowing stuff, mind blowing. Uh, you know, I just had never. You know, it just really it opens up the brain to kind of the things we can do with the ABA. And I know there's really a an appetite these days, uh, you know, for a bunch of different reasons uh, for folks to sort of expand outside of just sort of, um, you know, um, mm. uh, the typical kind of autism uh, North American perspective intervention. And so uh, really, really cool stuff happening down there. And, and, and Dr. Lee is certainly no exception there. Uh, before we get into kind of a lot of the cool work that you're doing, uh, I always like to kind of start with a bit of an origin story for folks, kind of, you know, how you got into the field of ABA and and uh, mm -hmm. and what what brought you to sort of from that point to, to where you are now at Juniper. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me again. Um, I hope this is interesting to many people. Um, so my... Um, I guess ABA, you know, slash, um, you know, autism related work um, really started out, um, you know, from a more international development um, background. Um, so I did an um, internship in college um, in Ethiopia, um, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, where I was an intern um, at a disability rights organization um, called Ethiopian Center for um, Disability and Development, where I was mainly in charge of, um, you know, teaching English to um, college students uh, with disabilities in the Addis Ababa University um, and some other things. Um, and I was doing uh, microfinancing and, and things of that nature um, to kind of help 
um, you know, work with Ethiopian adults um, with disabilities, mostly physical disabilities, um, to kind of, you know, get their business started and, and, and you know, access the mainstream microfinancing institutions and so forth. Um, and then I, I visited a um, special education classroom um, with uh, uh, some of the foreign volunteers who were there um, before me. And it was um, it was really eye opening um, for me, um, not because of you know not only because of that you know physical conditions um, you know they didn't have electricity you know the classroom was literally made out of mud and you know all that sort of stuff um, but then it was because they were so separated um, from the general education um, classrooms um, you know physically speaking so. They were obviously in a separate building, and you know we also see that in a lot of um, schools in America too. But um, they were very separated. Um, the teachers um, apparently don't really communicate uh, very well with the Gen Ed teachers. Um, they're not you know properly trained and all of that. So upon coming back um, to the U.S., um, I decided to change, well, sort of change my major um, to special education, um, and then started working with um, kids uh, with uh, more um, needs um, at the time. And then I just sort of got into ABA, um, I guess, really by mistake almost. Um, I didn't know what my first um, job uh, was really about as a college student. And then it turned out to be a, um, um, a, a you know, segregated uh, school for children with um, autism and, you know, at the time, um, emotional and behavioral disorders. Um, who had, you know, lots of severe challenging behaviors. Um, and this was back in Eugene, Oregon. Um, so then I worked there um, and I just got really fascinated, you know, with behaviors and, you know, why these behaviors happen and what we can do to not only respond to these behaviors, but also kind of, you know, help prevent um, these behaviors from happening in the first place. And, you know, really, uh, you know, really help uh, students to have, you know, these positive experiences at school, um, because a lot of times, you know, there were, what well, you know, back then what we called outbursts and, you know, these challenging behaviors um, happening at a very high intensity and frequency. Um, so we wanted to kind of see what we can do to change that. Um, and at the time, as a, also as a college student, um, there was a, you know, just for me personally, a good experience. Um, so I can, you know, kind of get my foot wet, so to speak, um, in the behavioral world and in autism world. Um, so I think that's kind of how I got started. And then I got my master's in um, early intervention, early childhood special education. Um, and then I did my uh, BCBA at the FIT um, and then my doctorate in um, at the University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign, also in special education. And now I'm here at the Juniper Gardens. Wow, cool. Really cool journey. Uh, things kind of there uh, really resonated for me. First off, um, the, uh, the, and, uh, and uh, my experience is, is different, but similar, but kind of in a different order. Um, um, uh, first off, the, the, that initial experience in Ethiopia, I think, and will really, you know, I think listeners will really uh, resonate especially when when we start to talk about your current research because I, I i can see how it, it was definitely influenced probably by by that those experiences um folks will see in in the in the uh in the soon to be titled uh, uh, episode uh here uh that a lot of your work is in kind of what what are called low resource areas and we'll dive more into that uh in a bit um 
but uh, it really sounds like this uh, this experience in Ethiopia was really a, you know kind of an introduction to what kind of these severely low resources might look like. I uh, I had a great opportunity oh, going back to I think we're going back to two thousand and nine or something like that to uh, do a exchange trip with uh, Rotary um, uh, down in Ecuador for six weeks um, for kind of folks that were early in their career and and they kind of set us up um, uh, with uh, communities and and uh, and uh, experiences uh, that were of a similar field that, that we were working in and so I got to uh, similarly visit a segregated special education school in uh, in Ecuador um, uh, and uh, some, some some sort of newer uh, sort of autism specific schools but the most interesting perspective that I got to see was um, uh, and my, my background was kind of at the time I wasn't even in ABA really then I was working group homes um, um, and so I got to visit a, an Ecuadorian jungle group home, uh, oh. and it was for individuals with physical disabilities. Um, they were, I think, wheelchair bound for the most part. But this place was literally a roofless, uh, concrete form structure with uh, you know holes for windows, but no actual windows, you know, and so on. It reminded me of almost like a you know a, a defunct 1940s army bunker or something. Uh, and uh, and these individuals were living in there. It was you know from our sort of sort of, sort of standards, be it the type of place you'd you know that you know, provincial health boards would shut down immediately, sort of thing, and have us all arrested for running. Uh, but there, it was, this was you know typical and normal, and uh, and and they were quite happy there. In fact, the residents were enjoyed their space, and you know very little resources, very little to kind of go on. Um, and so, you know, it just really gave me a whole different kind of perspective on, on kind of, uh, you know, uh, how things are everywhere else where, where, where those kind of resources aren't available. So that, so your story of Ethiopia really, really kind of echoed for me. So would you say that that Ethiopian experience was a big part of why you're kind of doing the work you're doing today now? I would I would say that um, yeah and but then I, I think it also kind of connects to my personal um, background and you know my upbringing um, I I was born and raised in Korea um, and then South Korea right um, and then um, my uh, parents uh, you know we decided to go to China um, it was a rural city then um, called uh, Kunming um, in Winan Province. Okay. Um, because uh, my, my dad at the time, oh, still uh, uh, is, um, is a doctor, a uh, medical doctor, and he had his own private practice and everything, but then um, he decided to become missionary um, oh, in wow. China. Um, so then, yeah, so then um, he, uh, you know, they went there um, along with us, the three of us, um, and then I, I, I lived in China for about six or seven years, and I, um, you know, was exposed to that, you know, low-resource um settings um in terms of economic hardships um but also kind of thinking about you know where that intersection between disability and development um really is and all a lot of the disabilities at that time at least um that we were able to see um you know were related to physical disabilities and i remember kind of thinking um you know because at that time I you know knew about you know these developmental or you know intellectual um disabilities and I kind of wondered where these people are because they are you know very much stigmatized and 
um, you know, segregated um, and not really included meaningfully in the society. Um, and, you know, China is a big country, uh, but then we weren't able to really see a lot of them. So, you know, that kind of got me in wonder too, I think. So, you know, my, I think, interest in international development and disability kind of sparked, um, well, even when I was little, I think. Yeah, yeah, right. And so when did you move from, from China or, or Korea, I guess, to, 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 to this, this side of the world? Uh, so I was in China until um, I was in 12th grade. This is senior in high school. Okay. I went back to Korea to graduate from high school. Right. And then I uh, went to Oregon um, for school. Gotcha, gotcha. Right on. And Oregon, certainly, you know, for, for folks that are listening uh, and uh, uh, will resonate, I think, for folks that are kind of familiar with the, the area of kind of positive behavior support and PBS is kind of a lot, had a lot of or, origins in Eugene, um, and so it would make sense that that would give you a lot of exposure to sort of the, the prevention side of the field, which I think is something that uh, that really needs to be uh, addressed. In fact, uh, uh, we're recording today's episode on uh, Friday, August twenty sixth, and I'm releasing uh, uh, part one of an episode of an interview I did with uh, Dr. Joe Lucician. Uh, who uh, yeah. who uh, spent a lot of time in Eugene? Uh, it's a two part. It's a two part interview. Joe was my uh, 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 thesis supervisor when I did my masters at uh, UBC, and uh, so Joe and I spent a solid three hours uh, talking on that podcast, and so we really had to pare it down to a couple episodes. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, a, a lot, a lot of really good conversation on prevention and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and all the things that that, that it entails. Um, so, you, so at at, at you're at Juniper now. Um, what sort of and, and I understand you're in, maybe first start. But I understand you're in, you're in a your your current role is is a is a, it's a postdoc um, um, fellowship. Is that the, is that the term or? Uh, I think the official position is postdoctoral researcher. Postdoctoral researcher, and uh, yeah. <laughs> I touched on this a bit with uh, uh, Doctor Nicole Hollins, who's also mm-hmm. at Juniper. Um, um, but uh, I wouldn't mind just sort of reiterating a bit. What 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 is a postdoctoral researcher? What does that mean? Yeah. So this position specifically is funded by the IES, um, you know, from the Department of Education. Um, and then, uh, so uh, you know, basically, a couple of PIs, um, principal investigators um, at Juniper. Um, so this is Howard Wills and um, Brian Boyd. Um, they are the PIs on this grant, and then they secure this grant. So, you know, basically money to hire postdocs. Um, I think it was supposed to be two postdocs for two years, and then, you know, that's two cycles. Gotcha. Um, so total of four years. Um, and then they would, you know, hire people. Um, you know, we would have, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, training opportunities from the IES and, um, you know, including like attending the IES PI conference and, you know, things of that nature. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So it's a... Essentially, a um, um, place where you can do, you know, really focus on, on research um, because you, you don't have any, typically, you don't have any teaching responsibilities um, or anything of that nature, um, at least while you're, um, you know, here as a postdoc. I suppose if we were to compare it to, say, a field like, like medicine, uh, the mm-hmm. postdoc might be kind of analogous to the kind of the residency sort of component. In a way, in, I, I think so. In, yeah, in that you're already yeah, I mean, they're already a medical doctor now, 
but they're still learning the ropes about sort of right. more advanced and pieces and, and more training. Yeah. 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 And, and, and there's specialties. Right on, right on. So the work you're doing now, which is really cool. Um, was that just something that you had sort of proposed or were there folks at Juniper already kind of doing that kind of work and, and they kind of took you under their wing? I think a little bit of both. Um, but I would say, um, you know, the majority of the work that I'm doing right now um, was really shaped by, you know, my time at Illinois um, in Dr. Hera Medan's um, family lab. Um, and I, I really enjoyed my time there because I was able to really conduct these, you know, cool research in my mind, um, you know, the cool things that I really wanted to do and, you know, I really felt passionate about doing. Um, so, I, you know, I, I would say um, a little bit of both, gotcha. but definitely more on, yeah, uh, Illinois side. Right on, right on. Well, let, let's let's get right into it. So you're doing, the, the research that you're doing, uh, and, and kind of what drew me to you initially uh, when I was sort of looking for guests was uh, there were sort of two, two sort of key words that sort of jumped out of, uh, literally jumped out of the, well, not literally, but jumped out of the, 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 the papers uh, to me. Uh, uh, one was this idea of cascading interventions, which we'll get into a, a little later. Um, but the first idea was this, this, this concept of, of low-resource countries, and specifically Mongolia, which I think, you know, I just haven't heard about anything related to our field and Mongolia in any fashion whatsoever. So right away, I, you know, I knew there would be some, some, some interesting pieces to talk about. But I think you also, before Mongolia, uh, and, and maybe, maybe it wasn't before Mongolia, maybe I just read the papers in the wrong order, but um, uh, you also, there was also some work in, in, in Paraguay, um, was the work of Paraguay first? Uh, no. Huh. Um, well, might have been, but that was primarily, um, you know, on the first author, right. um, Carl Ritterl, um, who was a doctoral student um, then. Right, um, right. But we're close collaborators. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, anyway, in, in any case, you, you and, 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 and I read a, a little bio of yours on some other page, I forget what it was, just uh, sort of talking about sort of uh, your the opportunities you've had to kind of do work in a lot of, you know, sort of uh, uh, other countries around the world. And I think that's, that's really, really cool. What does this sort of concept of, uh, of, of low resource countries mean? And, and why is this something that we need to kind of do research on? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think it kind of goes back um, to the first, um, paper that I um, published um, on my own and, you know, with my advisor, um, it, it was a scoping review um, to kind of look at how parameditated interventions uh, for children with autism, um, you know, and what's happening in a lot of the low resource um, settings. And we had this, you know, debate about what low resource setting means, because, you know, just because it is a, uh, you know, low to middle income country classified by the World Bank, that may not necessarily mean that it's a low resource setting. And, you know, um, on the other hand, if we look at some of the, um, you know, rural areas in the U.S. or in Canada, I think those places could also be classified as low resource settings because when we talk about low resourceness, I don't know if that's a word, but we're really primarily um, looking at, um, you know, resources related to, you know, our interest, you know, which is autism and autism interventions. 
So then if there are not a lot of BCBAs or if there are not a lot of um, you know, system level um, assistance to that region, then I think we could you know, um, likely call that place um, as a low resource setting. And in fact, um, in this scoping review, we came up with uh, you know, I think five or six um, criteria um, you know, that will define a, or help define a uh, geographical region as a low resource setting. Um, I think this is important because first of all, at that time, um, you know, three, four years ago, we hadn't really seen, a, you know, a, a big body of literature, autism intervention research um, specifically, in, you know, these um, settings. Uh, we would probably see a lot coming out from, you know, US or Canada, um, or, you know, European countries, um, but, you know, the, the rich countries, what we call the, the weird societies, but we don't really see a lot um, coming out from other um, countries. And, you know, when we think about how many countries there are in the world, why are we not really seeing that? Um, you know, there obviously is an issue of publication bias, and, you know, we only see the studies that we are, you know, we have access to and things like that. But then even in... Um, you know, a lot of the uh, different countries I research, we, you know, haven't really come across a lot. So I was really interested in what people do out there, um, you know, when they don't have a lot of BCBAs, when they don't have a lot of professionals um, to even diagnose um, children with autism, and what, what can these families of children with autism do um, in response to the low levels of resource and, you know, low levels of access to resources? I don't know if I answered your question. Oh, absolutely. I think you totally did. And I think it also, I really like the the point, a few points that you made. I really like the point that, first off, it's not just about whether you're in a, a higher or a lower income country. Uh, I had uh, Dr. Rocio Rosales on uh, a while back. And she works with, uh, in Massachusetts, I believe. And um, she was saying, and I, and I uh, forgive me, Rocio, if I'm quoting this wrong, but I believe she said that Massachusetts might have might have like the highest, if not one of one of the highest, if not the highest uh, concentration of BCBAs in the world, as far as sort of a region. Um, mm. And we know Massachusetts, there's a ton of really great schools there, um, and right, some really, right. really, 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 uh, really sort of foundational stuff that kind of happens there. And and it's a, and it's a really small state, and for folks that are, sort of live outside of North America, it, it, it is a tiny, tiny piece of land, um, and yet. With the highest concentration of of, of, of BA RAN lists, she was talking about how in kind of I think it was Northwest Massachusetts, uh, uh, kind of the rural area. Uh, she was doing her, the work she was doing was with uh, Latinx uh, families, kind of living in that area, and talking about how they have no access to ABA services there. I was mind blown that you know, <laughs> in the most dense population of BCBAs. Yeah in a really small area that there's a large section of, of individuals, particularly those from the, that Latinx background uh, that don't have access to services. And, 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 and she, and I'll, I'll let folks kind of listen to the episode to, and read uh, kind of her recent, her recent article to get more details on kind of why that is and what's going on there. But it was just really mind blowing that there really are still so many of these, I, I guess, and it's a great term, low resource areas, it, it, literally in our backyard. I mean, where I live here on 
on uh, on Texada Island is uh, you know I'm the only behavior analyst here, but I, I don't I don't work with clients, so there really are there's none here. Right. Um, and in and right. in the in the closest set in the closest city that that's that's near us, there are none. Um, and I know that people are traveling behavior analysts are traveling by multiple ferries, uh, you know, to come in to to provide these services, and obviously costing families you know uh, an exponential amount of funds to kind of get access to those services. So. Um, point being that um, um, I can already see, you know, and, and we haven't even sort of dove into the, the, the real work you've done, how not only is it really important for us to kind of take a look at what's happening in, in, some, of the, in some of these other, you know, countries that we don't have a lot of information on, but there really is a lot of, uh, I think, probably outcomes that you're going to have in this research that are really applicable to you know our own communities um, and, and and areas that are just are not far from the big cities, which many of us kind of tend to work in, um, and, and can give us a really good perspective. So I think that's really great. There's one thing you mentioned though, uh, just I think you just kind of uh, brushed over as you were describing, and, and that was um, uh, I think you see, I think I, I I don't know if I heard you right, but I, I, I did, did did I hear you refer to countries as weird? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a term, um, it's an acronym, okay, um, not, not actually weird um, <laughs> countries, but um, there is an acronym um, in, I think, um, public health or um, global health. Um, um, I, I think it stands for Western, um, Educated, Industrialized, uh, Rich, and Democratic uh, ah. um, So, you know, like, you know, in global health um, research, there's there's this old saying about you know, this 90, 10, um, gap, you know, something about, I can't remember exactly, but sure. something about, you know, 90%, um, of like, you know, research is coming from, you know, like 10% of these, um, countries, um, around the world or, or something of that. Right. Nature. Right. Um, yeah. 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 So just, a, you know, kind of, you know, from the equity, um, perspective of, you know, research and, you know, how resources are allocated and things like that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, and we won't digress into this tangent, but I think the term weird, you know, could be discussed in a few different ways uh, as far as, you know, our, our kind of Western, Westernized kind of perspective on a lot of different things, uh, looking at it from, right. through a different lens. I think that's a great acronym. I love it. Um, so um, tell me a little bit about then, um, uh, then um, the, the work you, you, you did in Mongolia. What was going on there? Yeah, so I, well, how I got involved in Mongolia, it's 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 kind of a you know funny story. Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm I'm gonna butcher the delivery, but please. <laughs> um, basically, um, I I had a old um college roommate uh, who lived with me. Um, and then he you know he he ended up um going to Seattle and and then ended up going back to Mongolia. Um, but then he um you know, was able to make a connection, um, you know, between me and this um, retired special education professor who was doing her Fulbright um, assignment in Mongolia, working with an NGO um, back in Mongolia. And, you know, through series of connections, um, um, this retired professor, uh, Peggy Gallagher, um, she retired from Georgia State University, um, she and I uh, chatted, and then she decided to, you know, make the connection between me and um, the the Autism Association of Mongolia, which is the NGO that I work with, 
um, because I've you know been interested in working um, internationally, and I thought Mongolia would be a good start because I back then I didn't know about this uh, very much, but then I you know really firmly believe that I need to be able to have a way in, um, so to speak, and then. You know, in a new country, you know, where I don't speak the language, I, you know, don't necessarily understand all the cultural nuances. Um, so then working with a stakeholder group uh, was a great way for me to, you know, really build this trusting relationships um, with and then, you know, ultimately, you know, be able to conduct research um, that'll not only advance my career, but also actually be helpful um, and leave artifacts um, that will be helpful um, in the country as well. Um, so I met up with, um, you know, these email exchanges um, with the AAM, um, the NGO that I work with. And then eventually I was able to go to Mongolia uh, this one summer, um, I think in 2019, so before COVID. Uh, went there and then did some parent training, um, you know, sessions um, on ABA and, you know, how, you know, what they can do at home and things of that nature. And then I did a um, series of individual consultations for you know challenging behaviors, uh, verbal behavior, um, you know, that type of stuff. But I, I, I think what's more important was I started this research uh, with a qualitative um, study. So I really wanted to learn more about what their needs are and what they experience and what their barriers are. So I started with that um, and then it ended up um, getting published on uh, Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. But it's really looking at what parents can do in a low-resource um, country or a low-resource setting like Mongolia, where there is virtually no professionals um, who can either diagnose or, you know, provide interventions um, for autism. Um, and that was, you know, really interesting experience uh, for me to do field research um, in a different country, um, which I really enjoyed doing. Um, and then after learning about their not only their needs and barriers and kind of the negative experiences, but they also shared a lot of positive things um, as well, and which I think is missing from, you know, these um, public health or, you know, autism literature. And really, you know, when, when we think about developing an intervention, we often think about it from a need-based um, sort of approach. But I think, um, you know, whatever they reported as positive things or, you know, whatever is working for them could also be, you know, utilized as a source of um, intervention development. So one of the things that the parents and professionals reported as a as, as a good thing was the NGO and, you know, how parents are able to help each other in the context of NGO, because that's pretty much the only place where parents and, you know, family members and professionals can, you know, get any resources related to autism. So this was a really powerful thing for, for you know to me and you know really resonated with me. Um so when it was time for me to do my dissertation, without hesitation, I um you know talked to my advisor, Dr. Hedamidan, um, about you know these issues and um she and I we agreed that you know we want to do something in Mongolia. And then COVID hit. <laughs> um so it was it was you know obviously a difficult time. But then we were, um, you know, we transitioned it uh, to telehealth and then kind of looked at how we can utilize the current infrastructure and, you know, what's currently working in Mongolia and in the context of the NGO and really utilize that and to really help strengthen, um, you know, their infrastructure. So we focused on coaching fidelity. So this is, you know, how parents um, of children with autism are able to coach other parents of children with autism 
on how to use evidence-based practices, you know, so social communication in this case and challenging behaviors. Um, and we were looking at um, the, the primary dependent variable was their coaching fidelity. So how parent mentors are able to coach the um, parent mentees, uh, you know, with fidelity. Um, so, and then we, you know, obviously collected a bunch of social validity data too. We conducted interviews virtually with um, all of the, you know, people involved, including the NGOs and the research assistants and so forth. Um, and I mean, I've had great help, you know, from my, uh, you know, Mongolian friends, uh, you know, Mongolian research assistants um, who were able to, you know, look at the videos and code the videos and do the IOA and all of the fun things. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. Really cool. Really cool. So a bunch of a bunch of good stuff in there. Um I guess first off, I just kind of want to know a little more. Maybe you could just tell me a little more without. I mean, I mean, you've got a whole paper that folks can read, and we'll share links to them all. Um, uh, about sort of what, what are some of the sort of the big takeaways from sort of what the autism experience is like in Mongolia for families? So, so you know, some of those negatives, some of those positives. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, uh, most of it was negative or you know perceived negatively right because you know parents are often and we see this also in you know the western literature too right so you know we see how parents feel isolated um you know when they first get a diagnosis they don't know what to do they don't know who to reach out to and you know their family members um you know may or may not be helpful depending on you know their cultural context and whatnot um, stigmatization uh, is, a, is a real thing um, in Mongolia, at least. Um, and, you know, a lot of those negative um, stuff. Um, but then it's, it's not only at the individual level, it's also at the, you know, more of at the societal um, level, too. So if we look at, you know, like Bronf and Brenner's, you know, like ecological um, system, it's not just a micro or the you know, the sort of that smaller circles, but, you know, it's the actual, like the meso and exosystems um, that are kind of turning against uh, family members who have children with autism because they're not able to get a quick diagnosis. Um, and a lot of people actually reported that they had to fly out of the country, um, out of Mongolia to, you know, places like China or Japan or Korea just to get a diagnosis wow. and then, you know, come back. But obviously not a lot, you know, not all families can do that. Um, it, you know, so, you know, depending on their economic um, um, advantages and disadvantages. So, you know, those things are very um, real. And, you know, we, I mean, I, 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 as a behavior analyst and, you know, as a researcher living in the U.S., sometimes forget about these things. And um, I, you know, try to keep reminding myself, you know, by getting in touch with, you know, parents and, you know, family members, um, you know, in the field and, you know, in other um, sort of cultural or geographical context. Um, so I can, you know, keep getting reminded. But anyways, um, I think the struggle really is real. Um, and I think what we're trying to do um, with the um, autism research in Mongolia is really to build capacity or increase the capacity of the community. Um, and by community, I specifically mean the NGO, um, because that is kind of the, the, you know, pretty much the only place where parents can get help from. Right on. And it's, and it sounds like the, 
it's it, the NGO experience is probably the, the is the source of kind of most of these the positive experience. Is it, so this parent connection, parent to parent connection, is that? Yeah, yeah, it's that parent to parent connection. You know, that peer support among the parents. Um, and sometimes it is you know sort of like a support group. You know, where parents can you know just talk about their feelings and you know how you know how how things are and you know things like that. Uh, but then also as a as a delivery system of you know information delivery system um so you know talk about local resources and you know there's a psychologist you know doing some type of um maybe not aba strictly but you know some type of behavioral management um kind of therapy with kids um and you know all those um um you know little details and um and, you know local resources they were able to pass on um so what we did was to kind of really examine this intervention delivery system um, and then look at how we can or if we can actually deliver information related to evidence-based practices um, that we know, um, you know, in the Western world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love this concept of parent-mediated interventions. Um, I mean, it seems... It seems like a really uh, sort of good way to go all around, low resource or not, um, in in the sense yeah. that, um, you know, I think often one of the barriers, and again, I, I don't have the research behind this, and I haven't really worked much in early intervention, but from, from just from sort of anecdotal conversations with colleagues, I think one of the big barriers particularly in our early intervention model, is we use RBTs or behavior interventionists or whatever you want to call them, depending on where you are, to implement, uh, you know, the evidence-based interventions. But then, you know, there's no sort of survivability of the intervention or, or, or generalization of the intervention, you know, once once you run out of the funding to pay for these RBTs, uh, because um, it's all being done sort of in clinic. And I know there are definitely, you know, generalization programs and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly I don't want to get letters uh, you know I, I, I know there 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 definitely is some work around transfer of skills but it seems like you know why not why not just skip the the RBT piece and uh, go right to training the parents now granted I know there's a lot of parents that don't really want to do that and don't want to have, don't have the the sort of um, you know motivation to kind of engage in that but I suppose in a in a low resource country where there isn't an opportunity to access RBTs I imagine there's quite a, a bit of a higher motivation for parents to to uh, you know kind of want to do that work yeah you know that's that's interesting because one of the um feedback that i got um you know for 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 this parent to parent um work uh was that it's really not fair for parents who have million other responsibilities and uh, you know duties to take care of to also take on the role of a therapist or you know a role of an interventionist who have to sort of um you know you know, spend time, take time to learn about these things, and then teach these um, skills to their child. When maybe, you know, for for some at least, this could be perceived as a societal responsibility. You know, this is the responsibility of the society. You know, of the of the general public. Sure. You know, with tax money. You know, not. You know, shouldn't be falling on to one individual parent, um, you know, who just happened to have a child with autism. 
and you know live in a you know low resource setting. But um, like I said, a lot of the times it's the only way that you know we can pass on interventions. And I mean, I would love to hear about other innovative ways to you know so that we can disseminate and implement evidence-based interventions on autism in these low resource um, communities. Um, and you know, I certainly welcome any feedback or um, any ideas about that too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what there would be beyond yeah. beyond sort of trying to, you know, build you know a similar model and build capacity and and and, and develop a system. I know I did. Uh, I've done a couple a couple of my early episodes were uh, with uh, behavior analysts in uh, uh, one in Egypt, one in Senegal, and one in Botswana, and uh, you know they all not necessarily low resource areas although definitely there were certainly in the i think particularly in the senegalese um uh, um, uh episode definitely some low resource pieces there but it seemed like all of those folks were were working were still working in the major cities in those countries mm-hmm. and uh and while there weren't many if any bcbas i think in in most in probably in all three of those cases, those three were the three people I interviewed were either the only BCABAs or maybe one of three in that country at the time, and yet they were, but they were building, but they were, but they were building a, a big sort of, um, um, not big, sorry, that's not the right term. They were trying to build capacity and and and, and sort of create more RBTs and that sort of thing, and 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 that was start, they were starting to flow now, but I think the problem was becoming now that. Now we've got a lot more RBTs than we have BCBAs, and maybe not even enough BCBAs to support those RBTs, which obviously runs into a bunch of ethical issues. And um, certainly, um, uh, you know, not to tangent too much into sort of another conversation, but I know that's a problem we have here here in North America, even where yeah. you know you have a lot of maybe poorly supervised RBTs that are are there for, are, are well essentially doing things wrong and um, um, and 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 potentially creating you know uh, problematic uh, and sometimes even abusive situations in in certain situations in certain sort of contexts um, so I guess one question I have is you did mention there I, I think it was in, in, in Mongolia there at the time there were 56 BCBAs is that right is is that sound familiar or was that maybe a different country <laughs> maybe maybe a different maybe country. a different country um, maybe there weren't any BCBAs yeah. in Mongolia uh in one of the studies Not in one of the studies you did there was 56 BCBAs I think I remember which one it was so it doesn't matter uh are there any BCBAs in Mongolia at all that you know of um I I last time I checked um which was around well Two years ago, maybe. Yeah. Um. There was none. There was none. And okay. I, I mean, you know, how, like the way we we look for this information is, you know, through the BACB website. And, of course. And you know, see how you know where they are registered with their address. Um. And then I I don't believe there was any at the time. Yeah. Um. Might have changed now, but um. Yeah. I I hope it changed. Yeah. Um. But you know, with the board's decision, you know, not to certify anyone um outside you know certain countries um anymore. Um. I I don't mean to you know get into the whole um. You know, thing about that. Sure, sure. I I just don't know. Um, you know, if a if a country like in Mongolia where there was not a lot of, I guess, like foundation, um, for you know, getting many PCBAs, 
people were trained, you know, outside their country and, you know, coming right. back here and, you know, have this, you know, establish this infrastructure. I don't know how they would continue doing that. Um, no, I, I get it. And, and I think, you know, there, there would have to be, you know, th- those individuals would have to have a lot of resources of their own because the stories that I've heard in yeah. these countries where there are a few BCBAs, it's generally a story of individual coming over to the U.S., which that alone, mm-hmm. you know, is a... Uh, right. Right, <laughs> it's expensive, um, right, uh, and and doing their training and then moving back. Or there's been a, a couple of folks that I've interviewed that I think were you know started as uh, you know um, started start started in North America and and relocated to some of these countries and then started things up. Um, but generally, you know, th- I think that's the only way it can happen. I know there are, you know, um, a couple of other accrediting agencies now that are are, are mm-hmm. trying to certify folks outside of outside mm-hmm. of North America mm-hmm. there's the IBAO and the, uh, Q, right. the Q, QBA, Q, QABA. QABA. Yeah. there's a Q there for sure uh, and um, um, uh, um, and so I think there is still potentially that piece but you know it, it I think it's going to be a long while and meanwhile we need to get these folks access um, yeah yeah right. yeah yeah um, does, uh, the other piece you mentioned around, uh, you just touched on, which I've, I've heard many times, uh, in, in, from, from, from guests about sort of these kind of more rural areas is, is access to diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. in, in your study, did, did, uh, was it sort of required, was it required that the participants have an autism diagnosis to participate? Yes. Um, you know, I primarily focused on, um, you know, kids already who already have a diagnosis, um, confirmed diagnosis by a um, you know, there I think there is, there are a couple of psychiatrists um in Mongolia who give diagnosis, um, and some of those kids um in my study at least uh, were diagnosed outside um the country, um, so you know they flew out to you know Korea or Japan or China, um, they get a, got a diagnosis and then you know came back. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is resource. I guess what I was also wondering then, I'm, I'm, I don't, and you may not know the answer to this, but I'm wondering if there were, with this NGO, uh, which sounds like just, you know, an incredible group of folks, um, uh, bringing parents together. I, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering, I guess, and, 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 and again, I don't know if you have the answer, but I'm wondering if there were, because diagnosis is so difficult to access, I guess I'm wondering if there were folks maybe families that, you know, were pretty confident their kids were autistic, you know, couldn't access a diagnosis. I, I, do you think they would probably have still been able to be a part of this NGO at least um, and, and potentially, you know, share resources and, 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 and those sorts of pieces? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, the, the, the NGO is called Autism Association um, of Mongolia, but certainly I, you know, I know that they have, um, you know, parents with, children um, who likely will receive an autism diagnosis down the road, you know, had they had access to, you know, psychiatrists or, you know, pediatricians 
who would know how to do this. Right. Um, so I, I, I do think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's open to all, um, you know, parents who think they might have. Where, where I'm kind of going with this is, you know, access to diagnosis is also a big problem, even in North America, right. you know, p- right. particularly among, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, essentially non-white cultural groups, right? Um, um, you know, I, I, I know I've, I've had a couple interviews and discussions about, you know, uh, black families in particular, you know, who, who are, you know, really struggling to get a diagnosis, uh, you know, for for mostly kind of, um, well, uh, racist kind of policies that kind of prevented those things from happening. Uh, up here in Canada, uh, and probably in the States as well, um, you know, we have a lot of uh, indigenous folk that, you um, uh, struggle to get diagnoses because again through racist policy it's assumed that the behavior presentation is actually fetal alcohol sp- uh, spectrum disorder and not autism because it's assumed that you know these 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 parents are alcoholics because they're indigenous and therefore you know any 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 indigenous child with problem behavior that's that's FASD and and, and autism gets right. completely wiped out, um, and so um, uh, I, I uh, so what I wonder I guess so that, obviously a, a problem there for sure. I also wonder, you know, could this concept of uh, of PMIs parent and uh, and and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I will just uh, you know for the folks listening, um, we I did have a, a guest on. Uh, uh, Thea Brain, one of my earliest guests, um, she does peer mediated interventions, which is also PMI. <laughs> a, little, a little confusing, uh, but with with uh, with with parent mediated interventions, this could be a really great tool for families that are, you know, pretty confident in the diagnosis. Because really, I mean, autism interventions don't really it doesn't really matter if you have autism whether they're going to work or not, right? You know, uh, you know, if you you do a, a behavior intervention with fidelity. Um, obviously, you have to consider, you know, the autistic sort of uh, uh, perspective, and, and there's there's the cultural identity and, and, and sort of aspects there that that you know might not be present in say, a neurotypical individual. But uh, you know, if you don't have that piece of paper that says I have autism on it, uh, that's not going to change whether you know these 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 treatments are effective or not. And so I could I could really see PMIs being a really valuable sort of you know gap kind of intervention for folks that aren't able to get diagnoses either either through you know financial means or or, or lack of access. So I I just really see the the potential for the work you're doing in Mongolia to to really be translatable to 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 kind of to kind of folks over here. Lost your. Oh, I'm so welcome, sorry. welcome back. <laughs> Did I click something? <laughs> Lost you for a second. It's all good. So I was just saying so um, the, that um, 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 uh, we're just talking about sort of how you know there, there there are a lot of barriers to diagnosis in any part of the world, um, and this idea of parent mediated interventions seems like a really good kind of sort of get stopgap kind of. Uh, tool um that, that we could use you know while folks are either either waiting to or maybe never getting a diagnosis um or b because of you know the the, the financial barriers to to uh to, uh, to accessing services the, the pmi seems like a really great option for for for, for folks uh, is that was that something yeah. you're thinking about too yeah, yeah, and I, I was gonna take notes, and then it, for some reason I hit the back button. No worries. I apologize. For All that. good. 
Um, but I, I do think it starts somewhere from having an awareness um, of autism and, you know, any, you know, sense of child development and kind of thinking about, oh, is this, is this the right trajectory? You know, is this the typical development or, or not? You know, if not, you know, what, what should I do to, um, you know, kind of either bring your child back to the, you know, that trajectory that, that you want to see or, you know, what you can do. And then there's the whole issue with, um, you know, screening tools. So, you know, these affordable, uh, you know, these super duper easy to access and, you know, easy to administer kind of screening tools that will tell you your child may potentially need additional evaluation and assessment. Um, and then, you know, that'll determine the eligibility, for example, um, in the U.S. and I'm sure in Canada too. Um, and, you know, like access to services and things like that. But I think in a lot of the low-resourced um, communities or, you know, like in the U.S., for example, you know, a lot of immigrant communities, um, a lot of, you know, resettlement or refugee communities, they don't necessarily have the same, in my experience, um, same expectations towards child development. So then if they, and, you know, there's obviously the cultural reasons um, too. So then, you know, if they see their child not, um, you know, talking or, you know, vocally talking or, you know, not feeding themselves until they're, you know, age of three or four, sometimes it just gets passed by and, you know, it's, 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 it's okay. Um, and then by the time, you know, these um, indicators, uh, you know, become more obvious, it's, you know, kids are already, you know, five or six. And that's why we see a lot of you know, disparities in early diagnosis and early access to treatment, um, you know, especially when we, you know, aggregate, disaggregate the data based on their race or ethnicity or, you know, country of origin. Um, and I think that is a, that is a problem, um, you know, in the U.S. And so then if people have enough awareness about autism or, you know, about developmental disabilities and kind of act quickly and you know that's what the cdc um you know the the learner um sign um act is all about right so then if we can catch these kids sooner and you know screen them sooner and have this systemic support to be able to you know for parents to be able to you know know about this and you know screen their kids sooner then we will likely have more parents coming in to the pmi world uh, where they will you know learn about you know, things like, you know, reinforcement, I mean, not even just ABA related stuff, but, you know, about child development, and, you know, what, what they should be doing yes. at this age. And I think that will make a huge difference um, in not only in autism screening and diagnosis, but also just in early intervention in general. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I had a guest on again, early, one of the early episodes, um, Another local behavior analyst, Dr. Amy Tanner, uh, and uh, her her area of specialization was pediatric behavior analysis. So, um, but which sounds like just working with children, but she was actually working with um, infants um, and, and yeah. sort of you know the, the babies, in fact. Um, and so um, you know, again, kind of to, to your point, uh, that family is. The, the 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 I think the the diagnostic research has advanced enough now that you know families can get some fairly accurate predictive kind of screening tools um, for their children at as young as like three to six months 
Um, there are sort of certain behaviors that, um, uh, so as I understand it, some of the research is essentially they've, they've taken, you know, babies that are kind of like zero to one and um, looked at looked at kind of the different behaviors they present with, coded them and whatnot, and found strong associations, you know, a couple of years later when they were able to actually get an autism diagnosis. The predictability was, you know, certainly higher than 50%. Um, I'm not sure what the exact numbers were. Um, so to know that, you know, there's a 50% chance you're, you're going to have an autism diagnosis in two years and you have two great years of, you know, critical development that you can now do some, mm-hmm. do some completely parent media interventions. I mean, no one's giving, mm-hmm. no, no one's dropping their, their two month old off at the ABA clinic to be, uh, right, to, right. to have BIs deal with them. And they should have, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. There's a problem there as well. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a real potential for parents to kind of, kind of do some pieces there. And then we're starting to see in, in, in a lot of these, um, kind of naturalistic uh, developmental uh, behavior intervention models, um, uh, they tend to be parent-led too. So like the early start Denver model and, and, and you know, and, uh, pivotal response training and, and, and other ones like that, that are, that, uh, you know, or even, or we're even seeing, you know, with uh, sort of uh, Greg Hanley's group, um, um, things like the balance program, um, yeah. um, <laughs> where, uh, you know, uh, essentially, you know, uh, there's a lot of these things that, um, parents can really do on their own to, to, to sort of affect things. Uh, so yeah, I think, I, I think it's really cool, but I, I think there's also, you know, a real potential for if we could start parents, if we could start parents early on this journey of, of doing that work themselves, um, there may be more of an appetite down the road for them to continue to do, you know, those, those, those sorts of things once, um, once their children are diagnosed, especially if, you know, you know, there are, um, there are those, uh, those financial barriers. One thing you, one of your papers referenced, and I think the term itself um, uh, got me excited just seeing it. This was the idea of cascading interventions, and I think part of part of the reason I I, I won't lie, you know, is 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 uh, is the word cascade. I, I live on the West Coast. Uh, we have a, we have a mountain range called Cascadia. Uh, I, I enjoy my IPAs, especially those that have Cascadia hops. Um, and so, yeah. so I think I think those are I think had nothing to do with your work. Why the term cascade stood out to me, and I wanted to write you and talk to you about it. Now that I think about it, because cascading model essentially is is is, is basically just a, a train the trainer kind of you know model. It's another term for train the trainer. It's uh, over and over. The difference here, I think, what we're used to with our with train the trainal models, um, sort of in our field, is these tend to be professionals training other professionals on how to inter, you know, to kind of do interventions. The difference here is that you have parents training parents, and I imagine there must be um, some really a lot of positives to this. I mean, uh, I mean, the the I think we know from our work that one of the biggest barriers to sort of successful intervention is is a lack of therapeutic alliance between you know mm-hmm. professionals and families and uh, we're starting to see more research coming out around you know things like compassionate ABA and and building relationships and and whatnot and and I've said this in a few episodes is that well it's great to see that research it's frustrating that we're only seeing it now in a field in, 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 a, in a human services field we're only looking at the therapeutic alliance and compassionate aba in the 21st century that's 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 problematic to our history but we won't kind of get into that too much um um but uh 
parents are much more responsive to other parents that understand that you, you get me. You, you know what I've been through. You've had the same experience. You, you, I know there's empathy. I mean, even me, I'm, I, I'm not a parent. I don't, I don't have children. And so when I try to do a parent training course, you know, uh, uh, the first question that, you know, the, 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 the students off, the parents often ask is, are you a parent yourself? No, right. I'm not. Right. Okay. I'm leaving. <laughs> or, or you don't know what you're talking about. Right. And, and fair, you know, fair. I, I cannot yeah. empathize with a lot of the things yeah. they go through. I do believe I know, you know, these techniques and these procedures that, that will be effective, but you know, I, 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 I can't make that sort of, um, uh, uh, connection early on, and so the the best way for me is to very first thing I say to you is, by the way, I'm not a parent, you know. So you know from the very moment we start that 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 that's a thing, but that still isn't really necessarily going to improve things. Um, what did did you find uh, that uh, this sort of parent to parent training piece was was what 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 did you learn about that? Like, what, what did you find about that? And maybe even, and maybe you didn't research this per se, but sort of comparing it to sort of a, a uh, you know, a professional to parent relationship and, and kind of what differences did you see that, that, that kind of came out of your experiences? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I think that the concept of um, cascading model, I mean, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time, I sure. think. Um, and, uh, my advisor, again, um, you know, Dr. Hera Medan, um, you know, they've worked a lot on how we can, basically how we can disseminate evidence-based practices, um, you know, through different layers, um, so to speak. So if, if we're here as researchers, and if there's that, you know, child, you know, with autism or, you know, child with, you know, whatever special needs, that there are lots of different layers um, that we have to go through um, if we want to directly, you know, get to that stage. Yep. So then, you know, we we are doing this by training, you know, providing training and coaching to all of these people in the middle. And oftentimes, you know, well, there are different types of cascading model, right? So sometimes, you know, it is, you know, directly from the researcher to the parent and to the child. And sometimes it is, you know, from the from the researcher or professionals to the professional who work with the parent and then the child. And then sometimes it is the, you know, like you said, parent to parent model, uh, researchers or professionals to the parent and then to another parent and then to the child of that parent who's learning um, these skills. I think there are, I mean, these are different applications um, and obviously, you know, the contextual fit and, you know, the social validity will be determined by what's happening in the context, right? So, you know, is it the context where we can, you know, really effectively train professionals so that they can work with other parents, um, uh, you know, of children with autism so that they can work with, you know, their own child? Then sure, you know, we can do that. But I think in the context of, you know, Mongolia and many other low-resource communities, for example, a lot of uh, parents, you know, a lot of parents, I think, they tend to... Um, step up, um, you know, for other parents. And I think this is a, you know, very, very beautiful thing um, to see where, you know, you see these parents of, you know, children with autism themselves kind of step up and, you know, learn about these evidence-based practices and then how to teach others um, and, you know, so that they can more effectively, you know, disseminate evidence-based practice or information related to that um, to other parents who 
are you know struggling to find these resources and you know difficulty um, access um, to, you know to these resources. Um, so I I do think um, it's a very it can be a very effective uh, way of doing things. Um, Dr. Sandy Magania um, at UT Austin, um, Texas Austin, uh, you know she is a, a, a big uh, proponent of using the um, what what she calls um, Bromotora. Um, um, model, uh, which I think literally means um, community health worker. I'm missing that that the second word sure. um, in in this in the original Spanish. Uh, but the idea is, you know, she developed this psychoeducation materials um, that you know spans out 14 weeks. And the idea is, you know, these parent mentors who were trained first will deliver this um, information, you know, disseminate this information to other parents of children with uh, autism. Or you know, children who just got their diagnosis, and you know, it's sort of um, you know, newer um, parents in the game. Um, so then, I think that you know is 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 a way um, of disseminating information. What we tend to focus on is more on this learning, you know, strategy acquisition or skill acquisition, um, so that we can actually teach uh, parents, you know, on how to do you know these caregiver mediated um, interventions at home. So. A lot of it involves um, naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions like NDBIs or, you know, teaching them how to, you know, help, you know, model, you know, for the child or, you know, how, how the child can imitate and, um, you know, how the child can mend and, you know, all of those things. Um, so I, I do think it's an effective way. Um, we recently um, conducted a, 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 a literature review on parent-to-parent models. Um, and what we found, and it's apparently under review, um, but what we found mostly was that satisfaction um, piece, you know, parents on both sides, so, you know, parents who are providing this and parents who are receiving this intervention from each other, um, you know, reported high levels of satisfaction related to this model. And then, you know, it's feasible um, because, like you said, parents of children with autism or children with, you know, health needs or, you know, whatever uh, it might be, they will have much, much, much greater buy-in from these parents because they have that commonality. They share something um, together. And, um, you know, it, it, it really is that um, rapport building uh, process. You know, it just makes it so much easier for, you know, these parents because they they know what they are going through. Um, and I think we see this with other types of literature too, right? So like, you know, um, not just autism, but like, you know, health needs or, uh, you know, um, um, support groups uh, for different um, disorders or um, you know diseases, and I think that bond of sharing something uh, very similar is very strong. Um, so I do think parent-to-parent model can be a strong intervention delivery model when we utilize it correctly. And now I think the the biggest problem with this is think about how we can. Train, you know, provide training and coaching to the parent mentors um, because that's the important piece. But that's also what's often missing in the literature. Um, so in our um, review, we see that you know a lot of um, researchers will say that you know they provided you know this and this and that um, to the parent mentors, but sometimes they don't necessarily report you know the demographic information of these parent mentors. Um, you know who they are and you know if they have, you know, high levels of education or high levels of income and, you know, that sort of things, um, that could be, um, you know, really effective, um, in, in, you know, determining how we can replicate, um, studies like this. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, really interesting. Um, 
I, I think yeah, I think that parent to parent bond is huge, and it's also a thing that because you know our ethics code essentially won't allow it. We we as professionals can never have that bond with parents, you know, mm, in that yeah. way. We have we can have a relationship. We can have build rapport yeah. and build trust in, in in on 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 some level, but you know, there's you know you know there's and again, I'm, I I haven't I'm not a parent. I've not had those that parent to parent sort of piece. But you know, to to be able to you know really get you know into into the emotional sort of component of that to literally hold somebody when they're struggling, you know, um, um, and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, real, really have that sort of in-depth relationship that would just be essentially inappropriate for a professional to have, you know, I think with, with a parent, you know, it's that, that friend connection that is, is, is so strong. I think, I think makes a lot, it makes, well, it makes just for an incredible recipe for buy-in. Um, I, 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 thinking about your, your point about sort of training those parent mentors um because I do wonder about fidelity and I do wonder about sort of um um you know because uh, parents tend to talk to parents and i'm in I'm involved in a lot of parent social media groups um, and not as a parent myself but and i you know I've identified myself as identified myself as a professional in those more so just to listen to their perspectives and kind of and kind of get that piece and one thing I do see a lot of is is uh you know, sharing of interventions and strategies that are not evidence-based. Um, and so was there any piece in, in the training that kind of looked at that or, or in, in your fidelity measures that kind of looked at that in, in, in sort of, you know, we, you've trained them in, in sort of these, you know, behavior analytic techniques and procedures. Um, but now they're talking and, you know, and, and uh, today they, today yeah. they heard a, heard a great story today about uh, something called the sunrise program or the, you know, yeah. or, or my friend's got a dolphin in a swimming pool that's doing some really great stuff, you know, um, let's all get dolphins. Um, <laughs> the second secret word is Korea, K-O-R-E-A. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great point, and I mean, obviously, as behavior analysts, not not even just you know as behavior analysts, but you know as researchers, uh, we we tend to stick with what's evidence based, or you know what we perceive as evidence based, and you know right. scientifically validated, and you know have some research support behind it. Now, that's I think as far as we typically go, you know, we we present our product, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, we, we try to convince the consumers, you know, basically the families and, you know, the parents to, to use this um, because we have all this great science and, you know, all of that behind it. What I don't think we do particularly well as a field is marketing um, and, you know, is kind of that, you know, thinking about it from a, a more business perspective, we're not doing, you know, this great job of marketing for our product, you know, that has yes. such long history of, you know, science, but general public, family members, parents, they don't really care how, how many studies, you know, there are behind. I mean, some do, but, you know, I think most, they just want to find something that works for their child yep. and for them, no matter what it is. Yep. And I think that's why a lot of, um, parents and family members and also professionals um, kind of, you know, fall into this 
is um, you know sort of what we consider non evidence based um, practices. Um, you know these sometimes would work. Um, you know provisionally, and you know you know like I said, sometimes you know for some parents, it I I don't know why or I don't know how or the mechanism behind it, but it it worked. You know, maybe the diagnosis was wrong or, you know, maybe the assessment was wrong or whatever the reason is. And then we, we look at it and, you know, these parents, you know, would, um, because learning NDBI and learning how to, you know, provide reinforcement, how to be consistent, you know, how to be, uh, you know, more proactive in your, um, you know, interaction with your child 24-7 at your home is a difficult job to do i think um it's it's very difficult and that's why we typically don't teach parents extinction because we we know it's not going to work all the time and then you know we'll we'll run into you know bigger problems um at the end so thinking about you know from that perspective you know the perspective of marketing you know the perspective of you know this product development and how we can really disseminate and implement our um our science um in these real life you know families homes I do think we have to compete with, you know, those, you know, sort of non-evidence-based um, practices that seemingly are so attractive and, you know, it's just a, like a quick fix um, sort of things. And I think we also see that not, in, not only in autism, but also in other, um, you know, fields too, like cancer. And, you know, we have all these, you know, alternative medicine and those, you know, seem very attractive, you know, to people who have tried everything and, you know, just not getting the right results or the, the desired results that they want. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I can't really blame them uh, for, you know, wanting to try things. And, you know, especially back in Korea, for example, um, there are lots of um, professionals and parents, you know, doing, you know, oriental medicine, um, acupuncture, um, you know, herbal medicine and, and things of that nature to, you know, balance you know their brains and you know autism will go away type of thing um i you know i mean obviously i don't condone that and i i don't believe that is um scientifically valid but if a parent wants to do it because you know she or he does everything according to the oriental medicine you know that's just the you know the way of life for them you know when they get a cold you know they they take acupuncture I you know I I can't blame them for for wanting to try that or I can't blame any parents I think uh, wanting to try anything that might be potentially helpful um to their child yeah yeah but I think it's just a matter of how we sell our science how we really you know tell them why our science is better and you know more valid than others yeah yeah no very very good um I uh I uh. It reminded me of again the the interview I did with Addie Carden in Senegal, and she told me that um, the process basically that families go through there is um, um, I don't know the, the the they recognize the the child either gets a diagnosis or the or the parent recognizes sort of the the, the new behaviors in their child. The very first step is to go to um, uh, sort of the and 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 I may be getting this term wrong, but essentially something akin to the the, the witch doctor idea, the spiritual mm-hmm. sort of guru person, the healer. The healer thank you. Um, and there was a ter- there was a and, and neither of those terms were the ones that were used. There was it was a, a Senegalese uh, word uh, that they used to describe these folks, and they would go, they would always, the parents would always go through that process first. It wouldn't work. 
uh, and then and then they go seeking, you know, uh, the, the the sort of the western the western sort of a, mm-hmm. a, approach as sort of being that way. So I think that that is a common thing, and I think it will change kind of, you know, uh, 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 as as we go from sort of culture to culture. I also think you know, parents aren't bound by uh, our code, right? So you know, uh, if, if parents want to switch it up and do their thing. You know, you know, um, that, 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 that certainly, uh, you know, you know, you know, is is going to be their choice. And there's, there's not, there's not a lot we can do about it to to kind of touch on the marketing piece. I think that that's huge. That's something that's been in my head a lot. And I've had a few discussions with folks Mm -hmm. on and off the podcast on that. And, and, and a couple of people have said to me, you know, the main point here is that we are not, not only are we not good at marketing, but the reason we're not good at marketing is because we're, we don't have any training or knowledge about marketing either. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's often the sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, perspective that some folks have that, you know, behavior analysts could do anything because everything's behavior. And therefore, you know, mm-hmm. we could potentially be good at everything uh, in some way or another. But, you know, that's that's that, that seems a bit ego to me, egotistical to me in, in, in my mind. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, certainly we can learn about things, but that doesn't mean that's not a behavior analyst uh, trait that's just a right. human trait um, uh, and so what I've been hearing more and more from folks is that what we need to be doing as a field is actually going out to you know the the public relations field and the marketing field and, and hiring those folks you know either to work for our local agencies to work for our you know ABAI BACB or, or whatnot and I have seen some of them start to do that I, I think I think our local chapter did hire some sort of PR related person to kind of oh. kind of provide to, to kind of start doing that work, uh, and so I think that's really important. The concern I have though now is that you know, and I think this could be more effective in, in, in countries in, in in sort of these low resource countries that aren't all that familiar with our field. I think if we start trying to do that in, in North America, you know, uh, we're going to get we're going to get cut to pieces unless we have the right kind of individual doing it because they're going to know we're, they're going to think we're just trying to cover it up. Now, you know, We're just trying to cover yeah. up how yeah. bad we are at doing this, some things. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's going to be this, that solution is going to work here. I think it's going to work, I th- right. but I think it could be a really effective solution. Certainly, uh, you know, overseas, I think it, it can't hurt to try. I think it can't hurt, especially for new, there's a lot of new families that are, you know, coming out and getting a lot of, you know, uh, information that is sort of pushing them away from ABA for, some for good reasons, some for maybe not so good reasons, um, and you know maybe some some of the marketing can definitely help with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I I, I don't know. I I think it's an interesting idea um, to kind of look at it from a more product development yes. um, kind of perspective and thinking about why so many people, especially you know, for example, like autistic individuals. Um, are opposed to the idea of ABA. Um, and I, I know that's a whole other um, story. But sure. How, you know, thinking about it from a parent perspective, you know, not being exposed to any of this, and then, you know, they suddenly, you know, know about autism, yep. and then you know, they get this diagnosis. What do they do? Yep. They go home and, you know, they look up autism or, you know, autism cure, autism treatment, autism intervention yep. on Google. And then what they usually find, I think, um, is, you know, somewhat behavior analytic, you know, related um, things um, like, you know, what to do after you get a diagnosis, you know, talk to your insurance and that sort of sure. thing. But I 
I don't think there's a really good way for us to, you know, really disseminate our science and why this is what they probably want the most. And I think that's where we need uh, more improvement. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, before we wrap up, I want to talk about one other area of your work, um, uh, and uh, and particularly, you know, uh, thinking about the research that uh, you've done in Mongolia. Uh, you, you, there's a study, and again, I'll share all these studies in the show notes. You did some work in Korea itself, um, and then you mentioned the, the, some of the work you did with a colleague. Uh, in in Paraguay, and uh, I think, and 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 I think in all those articles, um, you talk about um, um, adapting to those cultures and, and sort of how, how you adapt those interventions. I think that's is a really a really important uh, piece for for folks working anywhere, but particularly, I think, in North America, because we have such a melting pot of cultures here. Um, and, you know, you, you one could easily have, you know, a Korean family, a Paraguayan family, you know, uh, an Ethiopian family and a Mongolian family on their caseload, um, right. um, you know, and, and the approaches need to be, you know, adapted for those different, those different cultural groups. And, and, you know, certainly that can be overwhelming initially, um, um, but it's also super important or you're not going to get buy-in. Um, you're probably going to have, you're probably going to, you know, you're certainly not going to get fidelity because um, there's just, and, and even, even coming up with even target behaviors, you know, um, it, it can, can be really pro- problematic and you could quite quickly uh, ruin any relationship you've started to make if you start sort of focusing on one thing versus another thing and so on and so forth because of the different, you know, uh, values and, and, and perspectives of folks from different cultures. You just, when, when we, when we had our chat sort of uh, before, before scheduling the interview, you talked about, um, and you also referenced it a bit in your papers about um, uh, this idea of cultural adaptation and that you actually were working on a, a bit, of, a bit of a, a checklist, kind of related to cultural adaptation. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? About that. Yeah. So um, the cultural adaptation checklist, um, you know, which which is still under review um, at a, at, a, at a journal, is um, kind of a product of you know our multiple iterations of trying to culturally adapt. Um, our interventions, you know, mostly psychoeducation interventions or, you know, direct treatments um, like PMI um, with families from different cultural backgrounds. Um, and then we found that it is somewhat difficult to, to culturally adapt it without a, a, a strong quality indicators or, you know, like a set of guidelines, you know, where it'll tell us, oh, you should, you know, when you translate language, you know, you should do this and this and that. Or, you know, when you work with, you know, these people, you should, you know, make sure that you include, you know, these folks, um, you know, in your research team and that sort of things. Um, so then we referenced a lot of autism interventions um, that had cultural adaptation components. And then we found out, um, actually, most of them referred um, to the ecological um, validity model or ecological validity framework. Um, that was developed by Guillermo Bernal um, back in 1995 um, and his colleagues. Um, this essentially contains eight dimensions um, of an intervention 
that can be um, culturally or considered for a cultural adaptation. Um, and this includes, I'm just reading from my notes Please. here, language, persons, metaphors, content, concepts, goals, methods, and context. And then uh, we merged a couple of them together and then we came up with our own called process um, in our cultural adaptation checklist because we think that iterative process is really important in culturally adapting something. And then we further divided each of the dimension um, into two phases um, called adaptation, which is you know, when you're preparing the adaptation of the, um, you know, the cultural adaptation, and then implementation, which means when you're actually delivering um, this intervention to the, you know, to the people. Cool. Um, and then we came up with um, 30 some um, items um, in each of the um, dimension, um, I think 32. And then um, you know, the idea is to really provide this systematic, um, systematic guideline when, you know, for researchers and practitioners um, you know, when they are working with culturally and linguistically diverse families um, you know, whom they may or may not be familiar with. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the um, brief overview of the, the CAC. That sounds cool. So what, what would be the sort of... So, so say I'm, I'm, I'm working with a, I don't know, a, a, a Mongolian family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and you know, and, and I want to use this checklist. Mm-hmm. What is going to be sort of if I go through sort of the checklist and kind of you know look at all all those those eight kind of guideposts? What's going to be the outcome of that uh, checklist? Like what 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 what's going to be created by that? Yeah. So it um it gives you I I like to think of it as like a sort of an roadmap um and like an overview of what you should be doing when you're culturally adapting an intervention um it it's not gonna it's not gonna be culture specific right. uh, because you know i mean obviously we can't anticipate you know um knowing about all these cultures and we, we you know don't try to do that and you know this is sort of um like a roadmap you know that tells you what you can do you know, according to each of the dimension uh, based on the ecological validity framework. So, for example, um, in language, um, you know, the, 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 the couple of items in language would um, include things like, you know, translating the intervention materials um, backward, you know, do the backward and forward translation uh, by, you know, using a team of bilingual and bicultural persons. Um, so this would, you know, include many components, right? So you have to have a team of bilingual and bicultural people who can translate these materials first, for, you know, forward, and then do a backward translation to make sure that the, you know, for reliability. Sure. Uh, now this is, and you know, we have like a, literally like a checklist, um, and then how we assess it is, you know, we can do not reported or not applicable, and then we can do partially, and then um, a, a, like a solid yes. We don't anticipate any interventions to have all, you know, yeses on the all 32 items um, because I don't think that's just, you know, feasible um, to do. And what we're trying is we're trying to suggest this, you know, ideal set of things that researchers and practitioners should be doing and, you know, can be doing in order to increase the quality of cultural adaptation um, in, you know, both their research and practice. But it doesn't necessarily give you like a very specific items or you know like who you should talk to when you're working with Mongolian stakeholders or like you know who you should be you know working with or you know who you should include in your research team 
when you are working with you know Ethiopian um, families or you know something like that. So it will definitely provide you with some broad guidelines, um, and some of them are you know specific. Um, you know about like specific action items, right? So like you know, partner with community stakeholders throughout the iterative process of implementation, and um, you know, partner um, and then like ensure the relevance of the original intervention content to the targeted population. So like you know, these are very um action oriented items, and we intended it um to be that way. Really cool, really cool. Yeah, that would maybe maybe a hundred years down the road, we might have a a wonderful online database where I can type in Mongolian and everything comes out, all the people to call, yeah. the contacts at that NGO, you know, all the Mongolian nice. BCBAs around the world, and so on and so forth. Uh, obviously, we're not there yet, but no, that sounds really neat and and a real and, and was was the the sorry. Just who who was that from the 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 ecological validity model? Who who put that? Yeah, it's um Guillermo um Guillermo Bernal. Um, I believe he is at the university um in Puerto Rico. Right. Um and yeah. And that that and that was that create that wasn't was that created for 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 ABA or is that created for I, just no, I, yeah anything? I believe it was counseling um or um psychotherapy right right um. And you know he's he's a psychologist, um, so from psychology. Gotcha. So de- so definitely, it's something that probably could be applicable even like across fields, as far as sort of just culturally adapting anything you're doing. Um. Yeah, and um, you know we uh, recently conducted a, a systematic review on um, culturally adapted um, autism interventions, oh. and you know a lot of them had uh, you know behavior analytic components um, in their interventions, but they also used the ecological validity framework um, to do that. So uh, I would say, you know, definitely um, it is applicable in behavior analysis. Right, right, right. Um. The third secret word is juniper. I have a, a few minutes left. I, I, I know you yeah. did, uh, and you also did another study on um, um, kind of cross-cultural perspectives uh, based on some different cultures uh, that uh, from folks that uh, folks I think living in in, in in the US is that right um, um, and so you were looking at black Korean Mexican and and uh, and, and white families were they, well, they were all in America is that right yeah, yeah. Um, and was that perspectives on autism or was that perspectives on behavior it was challenging challenging behaviors. behavior and uh why, 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 why did you do that study? Yeah, so this study, um, we started out with a systematic review. Um, we wanted to look at how caregivers um, or family members from you know uh, different cultural backgrounds first perceive challenging behaviors, or you know how they define a behavior as challenging, um, and then you know how they respond to these behaviors and you know what the impacts of these behaviors are to them and if there are any cultural you know similarities and differences uh we ended up uh recruiting for um you know these four um um ethnic groups um because of the you know the 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 demographic of the research lab um that we're working in and you know stuff like that but then we were interested in kind of the cross cultural uh, comparison um, and we, you know, did find uh, some culture, I guess, more culture-specific things um, and perceptions around challenging behaviors and, you know, how 
what they typically, you know, I mean, not all families are going to be the same um, just because they're from the same cultural background, but, you know, like what most families would see um, as challenging um, in, you know, based on their cultural background. It seemed, and it seemed from, and, and, and I think it seemed from the study that um, in particular, and maybe it's just the one paragraph I read, but it seemed like black caregivers seemed to be kind of most on the ball in terms of, um, you know, uh, using, you know, kind of, you know, function-based interventions and, and, uh, and, and, um, and describing challenging behavior from that sort of, uh, functional kind of perspective and whatnot. Um, first off, did I read that right? Uh, I, I think so. And, um, um, I, I would say though, uh, I, I, I tend to be a little bit more careful on interpreting, um, you know, like qualitative studies, um, right. And you know, just just because it's it's a very small sample sure. um, compared to you know the the population, obviously, yeah. um, and then you know just um, I I don't know it's this this sense of I think balance between oh I know about this culture yeah. um, so you know I'm I'm going to take whatever they say and then try to you know overgeneralize sure. it yeah. Yeah, across yeah. you know all Koreans or you know all Mexicans um, yeah. in the U.S. Um, versus you know, I'm, I I don't know anything about this culture. Right. Um. So, yeah. So I mean, it's 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 that balance. Um. Um. But I mean, I I think you're right. You know, at least in our study, yeah. um, the, you know, the participants in our study, um, and you know, divided by different cultural backgrounds, um, they did um have some distinct um perceptions on challenges. The reason I I mention it is because it also kind of goes back to the earlier point that I had made around um. Uh, you know, access to diagnoses, um, and and black families in particular, uh, you know, seem yes. to have a, a a a lot of barriers to diagnoses, and in fact, professionals literally don't believe the perceptions of of the black parents, and yet, you know, and while your study, you know, as as you as you you know, clarified, doesn't necessarily imply that all black caregivers, you know. Are, are have the same sort of results that, that you found here. It's interesting that you found out that the black caregivers, you know, in your study seem to be the best kind of describing those behaviors and, and using those interventions. And yet, to our professionals, they seem like the worst, you know, um, it, 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 on, 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 in, on, in, in some examples. And so, again, that that's not all of them. I know there's many professionals out there that are, that are, 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 are doing this work properly, but it's it's just an interesting sort of paradox that uh, you know, or, or sort of contradiction, I guess that uh, you know that that uh, that qu- your qualitative research shows that some of these folks are, are are really know what they're talking about, and yet there's other research that shows that professionals don't think this particular group knows what they're talking about. And I think that's, uh, that's a bit telling. I mean, there's certainly more digging to do there, more research to be done, more quantitative data and whatnot, but it just sort of, again, speaks to bias and, uh, and, 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 and some, and, and, you know, kind of many of the kind of the racist policies that I think that are just embedded in sort of our, our North American system um, that some, a lot of these assumptions are made. And yet if we dig in and, and start talking to, to, to these folks that we've made these assumptions about, we can, we can, we can learn a completely different story and maybe learn some lessons. Yeah. I think the sense of 
implicit bias, especially related to race and ethnicity and culture, um, you know, of the providers, um, you know, certainly make a difference in how they actually, you know, do the delivery of care and delivery of, um, you know, these practices, um, in, you know, in the daily practice. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think, yeah, so like, you know, for example, in our BCBA or BACB um, courses, we don't really learn about how to, you know, work with diverse families yeah. or how to, uh, you know, um, you know, work with, you know, and interact with, you know, different types of um, participants or, you know, caregivers or families. And then even in our CEUs, um, you know, for research, I don't think there's a whole wide range of selections um, related to this issue. Um, and I think that is a problem. Um, and because we're essentially cultivating next generation of behavior analysts who know how to do FA, who know how to do FBA and, you know, all that good stuff, but then doesn't necessarily know what their implicit biases are and how they can affect their daily practices, um, you know, with diverse caregivers and diverse families. And then what the implications of that are. Um, so I, I, I do think it's a, it's an area that we can, you know, definitely try to improve more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think things like your hopefully soon to be published uh, cultural adaptation adaptation checklist will be great tools to kind of work towards that goal. Um, Fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. James, really cool discussion. I know you, you had mentioned to me before we started that I hope folks are going to be interested in this stuff. I can't imagine <laughs> them not being interested in this stuff. This was a really cool discussion. Really neat things I learned. Um, um, uh, really cool perspectives on sort of what's going on around the world, uh, you know, um, and uh, and really glad that uh, you're 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 a relatively early researcher. So I think that means there's going to be a lot more cool stuff coming out from you and and and, and folks in the labs you're working in. And definitely we're going to have you back because I know that there's going to be some some really neat stuff coming down the pipeline. So thanks thanks again for for being on the show. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So awesome.